Good morning. My name is Spencer Broston. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Stephen's. And what a blessing and pleasure it is to be here with you all this morning. Whether you're in the building or joining us online as we gather to worship and welcome the Christ child of Christmas. Over the past few weeks, we've been listening for the voices of Advent, the voices that remind us of why this season is so important, the voices that tell us about the depth and the meaning of, uh, of this time of preparation. And this week, we turn to the voice of the innkeeper, and we go to a familiar text for Christmas time, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. May God, the word of God for the people of God, thanks be to God. And may God add his blessing to the reading and hearing and proclaiming of his word for us today. Amen. So once there was a little boy, very excited, after church, nativity pageant first practice. He jumped out to the, ran out to the minivan, jumped in as his mother came to pick him up, and when he finally settled into his seat, his mom called back and said, so, what part did you get that makes you so excited? The boy could hardly contain himself, and he said, I got the part of the hero. The hero? She asked. Are you Joseph? No, Mom. The look he shot her made it clear. He thought she was truly clueless. Are you the lead shepherd like last year? No, Mom. She really wasn't getting it. Are you going to be a king and wear a crown this year? No, Mom. It's better than that. The angel. You're Gabriel. No. Tell me you're not baby Jesus. Oh, Mom. I told you, I'm the hero of the whole show. Well, who are you? I, the innkeeper, the boy announced, grinning from end to ear. Without the innkeeper, there wouldn't have been a place for Jesus to be born. What an interesting twist on how we usually think about that situation surrounding the birth of Jesus. If we were to simply tell this story without reading it from the Bible, um, Typically, culturally, uh, we, we tend to summon up something like this. Mary and Joseph traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They were turned away from the village inn by the innkeeper, and then they took refuge in a barn where baby Jesus was born and laid in a manger. The very early church uh, traditions even say that the site of the nativity was a cave uh, on the outskirts of Bethlehem. The biblical story of the birth of Jesus is found primarily in what we just read in, in Luke 2. What's interesting when we compare those verses from Luke 2 to the typical way we sum up that story is neither one mentions or delivers a quote from an innkeeper. Our traditions place one in the story because we have this, this void, this gap 
between them going to a place to stay and ending up uh, putting the baby in a manger. So we have this gap, and we fill it with an innkeeper and give him or her a part to play in our annual nativities. And as we look at Scripture, even though our, our, uh, some of our older translations continue to use the word uh, in, it doesn't actually say that word, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but the Greek word that is translated, um, that we use for in in this text is the same word that gets used for the upper room at the end of Jesus' story, where they go to have what we now call the Last Supper. So we're going to explore that a little bit this morning. Uh, and also, the text never mentions a barn or a stable, but we get there from a manger. Reasonable assumptions to make. Now, before I get too far, I'm not leading some great charge to change our nativity sets, our stories, um, or, the, or anything else about it. The only reason I mention any of this is because we've turned the scenario into a negative story on being hospitable, on making room for Jesus. This is still a story of hospitality, but it's a hospitality in the face of overwhelming odds. I think it makes it even better, if we, even if we just stick to the words that we find in Scripture. So let's, let's set the scene. Let's, let's drop the, or bring the background, the cultural background here. There's a long Hebrew tradition of welcoming the stranger. We hear in Genesis uh, the story of Abraham and Sarah. The innkeeper or whoever was the head of this house would have learned a story of them, and he knows that the couple welcomed those three strangers that came to their house unexpected. And later they learned that they were entertaining angels in their midst. And then later Moses puts it into a teaching it's in their Torah, in the Torah, in the teaching that, that he, uh, Moses brought to them, reminding the people of Israel, Israel that they are called to love the strangers as, as they love themselves because they were to remember what it was like to be strangers in Egypt. So here comes this couple, one of whom is very far along in her pregnancy, very far along in her pregnancy. Did I mention she's very far away along in her pregnancy, traveling, traveling, very far along. And then there's the desperate dad-to-be, right? The head of the household, whoever's welcoming them in, looks around, and they're stacked to the rafters with guests, and rather than turn them away, remembers their tradition of hospitality. We can't do what we would normally do, so we're going to do what we can. So he gives them a place on the first floor of the house where the animals were brought in for the night and the last guests would have to make do. So why are they stacked to the rafters? The other part of this picture is that this is the census. Um, the first few verses, Bethlehem we know is crowded with people coming to their ancestral home because the emperor ordered a census. After a seven to ten day trip, on foot, maybe a donkey, we don't know, we put a donkey in the story, I don't know why we do, it's awesome, I love having the donkey in the story, I don't hate it, it's just it's not in the story, but we put it in there and that's great, because that helps, that helps pregnant Mary, 
get there. The very pregnant Mary, get there on a seven to ten day journey. And they would have gone to the home of a relative, likely a distant relative, but someone in the line of David. This would be like, you know, many Southerners, Virginians, we know like third cousin, second, first removed. You know, we know all the, we know those things. So this is like a fifth cousin, twice removed kind of a situation, but still in the same line, still in the same house. And they, and their, their dads probably know each other. I don't know. But something like that is happening here. And he, and, and, and they get there and it's full now, if this had been an actual inn, a public place for shelter, then a random arrival doesn't seem so odd. I mean, there's no check-in system. There's no call ahead. There's no any of that, right? They know you're coming because you're standing right in front of them. But here, they just show up, and they're the last to get there because she was very pregnant, if you didn't catch that, and it was a seven- to ten-day trip. So where are the places to stay in the first century A.D.? In the, in the New Testament, we get two different words for gathering places. The one word that speaks of a traditional inn is something like panation. And the, only, the main time we see that word used is in the story of the Good Samaritan. When Jesus is telling the parable of the man who is um, hurt and the, the good Samaritan, the man from Samaria who takes after him, takes him to an inn. That's the word for a traditional public lodging place. The other word is kataluma. And again, as I said earlier, that word is what is used to do, uh, what we use for the upper room in Jesus' story, in the part of his story preceding the, the Last Supper. This is, that's the word that's used here. When Mary and Joseph, there was no room in the Cataluma. It's not no room in the, the other word that I'm not even going to try to say again. And it basically means a place to unloose. It's just a big open space. So this word is actually probably more of a, of a, public, of a guest room rather than a public lodging. And what does a first century home look like? I've got all this Bible nerd stuff that I really want to share with y'all, but we'll be here till 11 o'clock and I got to get you out of here so I can get the 11 o'clock people in here. So, but anyway, their homes were two stories and the top of the second story was also considered a space that you could live, that you could live in considering their climate. It was dry most of the time. It was hot most of the time. So particularly at night, that was pretty good lodging on the third floor. And as most of us know, December 25th isn't necessarily Jesus' birthday. So we're not talking about wintertime in the Middle East either. So the first floor where you, where we think of the first floor where you come in as the main living place in their homes, that was not the main living place. Their homes, sometimes even the first floor was even dug out a little bit, and sometimes even a cave, as some of the early traditions uh, put Jesus' nativity, birth in a cave. And it was in that first part where your, um, you would store your dry goods or any materials that you might have for your trades at home. And at night, in the front part of it, is where the animals stayed to keep them safe. Because even if you didn't have huge flocks out in the field, you, you, had some, you had some critters to take care of. So they stayed on the bottom floor. The, the main floor was the second story 
where you did your tasks, you did your chores, you did all your prep for the day and for the night or whatever, and then at night you put all that away and you rolled out your mats. And then on the third floor, the upper room perhaps, as, as we've come to call it in the terms of the Last Supper, was open air. And that typically was the guest room or the guest space or the place of unloosing, uh, as, as that word cataluma um, more literally means. Mary and Joseph came to their house hoping that there would be space in the, on the outside upstairs um, on the roof. But they get there and they're stuck. The house is full. So they end up in that back behind the animals space on the first floor of this home. You see, the, the, the family welcomed them into their home. They weren't sending them out back. Part of, it is, part of it is our Western culture. I don't know about you, but I always grew up, there's a barn if you, out in the country. The barn was out back. It wasn't like underneath. Your dog might be underneath the porch, but that was about it. Everything else was out back. So we do that. Our brains do that. We fill in the gaps with stuff. But here, they all, they're still living in town, but they have animals, and they put them up underneath, and there would have been a manger. All the pieces are still there. But for me, this paints a much more beautiful picture of, of hospitality in the face of an overwhelming obstacle. Can you imagine? Like you might, We might get overwhelmed when we're expecting a couple extra family members or maybe a whole set of folks coming over the house. We get overwhelmed. The people of Bethlehem knew ahead of time they were about to be crowded with people. They knew this, sense, this wasn't a surprise. The census was announced there too. So they come, and I mean, they know they're coming, they're getting ready, and they're trying to put up everybody somewhere because you welcome strangers because they could be angels unaware, right? So we do this thing, and they welcome them in, and they're looking everywhere in this house, and they're like, okay, this is not perfect, but we got a space back here. And Mary and Joseph take it. And that's where the nativity takes place. As we listen to this lesson, I I think it speaks to our lives and to living this out from the perspective of the Holy Family. We can learn that um, a, a sense of a humble resilience. There's no, I need to talk to the supervisor. There's no angry Yelp review. There's this, Babe in a manger. We don't even hear that there wasn't any room first. We first hear that the babe was laid in the manger because there was no room in the inn or the guest room or whatever you want to, however you want to say it. From the Holy Family, we can learn of humble resilience. From the perspective of the household welcoming, I think we can learn a, a, a lesson of tenacious resilience. There was no public protest, no Facebook campaigns, no letter to the governor Quirinius about all these people coming to town. Now, first of all, it's fair they wouldn't because it was a bit of a totalitarian empire <laughs> overruling them. But on the other hand, they also knew to trust God to see them through even when things were going to be difficult. They knew it was going to be hard, but they trusted God in the midst of the hardship that was coming their way. And as much as they could prepare, they knew that they were, they anticipated being overwhelmed. And sure enough, they were. Both of these, of these the, the Holy Family and the household welcoming them were faithful when it would have been easy and understandable to call it quits. 
I believe that level of resilience is born out of a deep and abiding trust in the ways of God. I think it's the only place that can come from. There are plenty of times when it would be easy, if not understandable, to just call quits. It's hard. Full stop. I'm done. In our homes, we face many unknowns every day. There are age-old unknowns that households have faced for generations and those that are unique to our time or unique to our families or unique to our situations. God invites us to trust him in the middle of all of that and to make the best of what we have and making a way to continue to be faithful. These days in churches, we face many obstacles, many unknowns, and we talk about adapting and innovating, but it still comes down to trusting God with what we have and being resourceful with those gifts. Even with challenges, known or unknown, God calls us to remain faithful, showing that humble resilience of Mary and Joseph, that tenacious resilience of the welcoming household in Bethlehem, and then putting that to use for the good of the kingdom and for making disciples of Jesus Christ. So if there was an innkeeper, we're just going to go, if there, this, this is what I think his voice might have to tell us today. I know this isn't what you would have preferred. We would rather it was different too. However, this is where we are, and by God's grace and mercy, we will make the best of it. We will trust God in the midst of life's opportunities and challenges. We will trust God in the ups and in the downs. We will trust God in the everyday and the routine. We will trust God in working in the midst of our uncertainty, of our hardship, of our suffering. We will trust God in in working in the midst of our celebrations, our victories, our successes. We will trust that God is working in the midst of our surprises, of the unplanned and of the unexpected. And who knows? Who knows? That when we do this, we may be entertaining angels unaware or at the very least welcoming the least, the last, and the lost. May we trust in the faithful presence of God, no matter what life brings. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your presence that abides, that is with us always in the midst of life. Whatever life brings, you are always present. Help us to lean on you and trust in you and to continue to be faithful, even in the midst of hardships and challenges and unknowns. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.